Romans have been enjoying wine for 8,000 years or more, and there's never been entry exams, literacy tests, diplomas, or membership fees. You can go as far or deep as you want, or just take it all in and find your happy place. That being said, we like to spend our week looking for things that we can share with you in this space and time. We'll give you food for thought, ideas for adventures, and most weeks, tips, pointers, and insights that you can use the minute the program ends. Wine has always united us. It still does. And we've never needed that more. So climb aboard. There is no time like the present to get your adventure started. So here's your host, the doctor of deliciousness, the chairman of the Bordeaux, the top gun of wine fun, David Wilson. And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter. I'm your wine captain, David Wilson. And you know, 15 years ago, I started Grape Encounters Radio with one single overriding purpose to significantly improve the wine enjoyment experience for everyday consumers through unconventional education, entertainment, and adventures that can be enjoyed by everybody, not simply those with significant financial resources or extensive knowledge about wine. Now, anybody familiar with the story, The Princess and the Pea, understands the notion that the smallest detail can often be a game changer. A little tiny pea that you can hold between two fingers was capable of making a good night's sleep incredibly difficult. Now, likewise in wine, there's no shortage of nuances that can enhance or wreak havoc on wine enjoyment. We've got a lot to talk about today, but I'm here to share with you some insights concerning these small details, details that can be a game changer. On today's show, I'm also going to tell you about something that just happened this past week that makes me really proud to be living in the Abruzzo region of Italy. And I'm also going to share with you a recipe that I have been playing with in my kitchen for probably about a month now. I'm finally ready to share it with you, and you've absolutely, positively got to try it because you'll wind up with a dish on your table that pairs with a lot of different wines beautifully and is more addictive than almost anything I've eaten in literally years. And by the way, I came up with this recipe totally by accident. I thought I had ruined something that I was cooking, and it turns out it was a a happy accident instead. Anyway, let's dive into the show. I want to begin today's show by talking about somebody that I absolutely don't like very much. And if you're a longtime listener to the show, you know, it's really rare for me to diss anybody or anything. We try to keep it positive here. But anyway, there's a pretty good chance that you know this person. They're just so incredibly annoying. Okay, it's that person that goes to dinner with you. And when the server or sommelier comes to the table to top off your wine glasses, this bozo immediately chugs down everything left in their glass to make absolutely certain that they get their fair share or more of the wine that's left in the bottle. Now, in the meantime, you and I are sitting there with glasses that are half full. And yes, I said half full for a reason, because it's an expression of optimism. You and I are taking our time and savoring every sip of what's in the glass. The gulper, on the other hand, is a glass half empty person who is probably getting little or no enjoyment out of the wine because it's being consumed so quickly. And for certain, that big gulp that polished off everything that was left in their glass had no taste at all. But come hell or high water, they're going to get their fair share. Yep, the gulper doesn't care about anything other than perhaps the buzz. 
Now, if you ever have the misfortune of getting invited to the gulper's house for a party, you can count on being amused because gulpers hang out with other gulpers. And so you'll see people walking around with plastic red Solo cups that are a quarter or a half full of wine. And even though it would take you and I another 20 minutes to finish off that amount of wine, they'll cruise by the table that's got all kinds of random bottles sitting on it and grab any one of those bottles that suits their fancy and then proceed to top off their glass with absolutely no concern about whether or not that fill-up is a different wine. By the way, I don't know if you've ever tried this, but you can put an entire bottle of wine into one red Solo cup. Anyway, for this person, there are only four kinds of wine. There's red, there's white, there's rosé, and there's bubbly. And with any luck, they'll proudly tell you how they just made a rosé wine by adding white and red together. (laughs) Isn't wine fun? Anyway, this person's story is an examination of taste and why we may not be getting as much pleasure out of what we eat and drink simply because we need to look into some efficient and easy-to-implement practices that can really make a positive difference when it comes to wine drinking satisfaction. Now, some practices that are a big part of wine and food enjoyment may be helpful, but not for the reasons that they were intended to be. In a nutshell, millions of food and wine pairing exercises occur every day around the world. You probably get invited to them all the time. The intended purpose of these exercises is to find wines and foods that complement each other and increase the pleasure we get from the wine and food separately and together. Some so-called experts go to great lengths to concoct pairings to accomplish this. However, nowadays, and I've been talking about this a lot on previous shows, more and more people are challenging these practices, and they're calling them a sham. Without going too deep into that train of thought, I'm going to suggest that if you get some time, Google one of the greatest psalms alive. His name is Tim Hanai, H-A-N-N-I. Tim has plenty to say on that subject. But the point is, more and more highly respected experts in wine and food are challenging conventional wisdom. Many folks that I really, really respect believe that the public is being seriously misguided and that wine and food pairing rules and guidelines have gone way too far. I personally believe we need to make it simpler for consumers to decide precisely what is genuinely right for you. Now, there's a silver lining, however, because what food and wine pairing events and exercises do accomplish quite successfully is to make consumers vastly more aware of the food and wine they're eating and drinking in that particular moment. In short, these exercises make us pay attention to taste. And so the obvious but unintended outcome is that we receive more pleasure because of raised awareness, even if the pairing isn't so brilliant. More and more these days, the authors of some of those over-the-top wine reviews that you read are being challenged because the language that they're using simply doesn't connect with the consumer, leaving us frustrated and feeling inadequate. But I've decided that it's actually okay, because even if tasting notes or pairing suggestions are entirely off the mark, they challenge consumers to pay attention to what's in their glass and what's on their plate. So even if the tasting notes or suggestions leave us scratching our heads, one thing's for sure, the wine will in most cases be top of mind. And the power of suggestion becomes essential here, because if the reviewer says it's fantastic, there's a pretty good chance that we'll have a more positive and pleasurable experience. Now, in almost all things, distraction is rarely good. How many times have you found yourself trying to read a book or an article online and realized that you'd read the same page or paragraph over and over again? The information needs to stick, but it doesn't. 
you were receiving absolutely no benefit from the reading that you were doing because you were going through the motions but completely missing the point. This happens to me all the time, and it happens in many different aspects of all of our lives. We can drive down the street on our way to work and pass hundreds of things on either side of the road every single day, but our distracted lifestyle causes us to virtually ignore most of what we see. Maybe you're concentrating on a telephone call, or maybe you're going through intense mental preparation for a meeting that's going to take place in the office first thing in the morning, or heaven forbid, maybe you're just focusing on your driving. Regardless of the reason, we filter out most of our world and choose only to pay attention to the most relevant stuff at the time. On the flip side, if there's something that we're looking for specifically, let's say a pet supply store, it's human nature to filter out everything that doesn't suggest dogs or cats. So, how does this relate to food and wine? Well, it's pretty simple. The most important reason we eat is to relieve hunger and nurture our bodies. Yes, eating food for pleasure is a big deal for most people. But when you've got only 30 minutes to have lunch, chances are you'll grab something, consume it quickly, satisfy your hunger, and get on to the next thing. If, on the other hand, all you had to do that afternoon was enjoy a casual lunch... You would choose something more fulfilling than a three-day-old convenience store tuna fish sandwich and likely focus a great deal more attention on your delicious meal. It would be a much more nuanced experience. You might be able to enjoy the food more because you're able to focus on all the different things that make that particular food and wine experience delicious for you. Which brings us to the pleasure principle, or how our minds affect food and drink experiences. The quality of any experience has everything to do with how engaged we are. In the age of Instagram-worthy meals, our food experiences go far beyond the simple pleasure of consumption. They can be a multifaceted experience involving sight, sound, smell, and even touch. Our minds play a powerful role in how we perceive and enjoy food and drink, from influencing what we order to changing how we taste something. Understanding this phenomenon could help us find more meaning and enjoyment in our meals because at its core, humans are creatures of habit. But that doesn't mean our experiences must be the same every time. Take wine, for example. We often enjoy it in different contexts, such as at a dinner party or while watching the sunset on a vacation. The environment matters a lot, and so does the company we're with. I've got some really interesting insights to share with you where that's concerned. We're going to take a little break here. You're listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson. We will be right back after some really important messages from the people who make this program possible. David will be back with more Grape Encounters right after they touch up his hair and makeup. Oh, wait, this is this is radio. Well, there's still paparazzi after the show to deal with. No. The only thing that Mendocino County winemaker Greg Graziano can't tell you about wine is how many different choices he makes. It's somewhere between dozens and cowabunga. Artisans like Greg don't count, they create. Did Da Vinci or Michelangelo take inventory? Let's just say that Italians like Greg can easily get carried away, especially when it comes to food and wine. Great wine is in Greg's DNA. His immigrant grandparents started making Mendocino wines in the early 20s, and despite being the head honcho of the much-beloved Graziano family of wines, Greg is just a humble, lovable guy. When you play in the dirt all day, you can't help but be down to earth. Ask your wine cellar for Graziano wines, or just visit GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. They've got five different brands. Why? Well, because Italians tend to have big families. Life is just more fun 
with a Graziano at your table. Welcome back to Grape Encounters, where people sometimes ask why anyone would drink a fine wine out of a red Solo cup. The answer is pretty simple, because we can. You've probably heard the saying, never drink alone. And while I'm sure that there are very few of us who actually follow this advice, there's a good reason to enjoy your wine in the company of others whenever possible. Did you know that people tend to rate wines higher when their peers or experts surround them? Now, this is likely due to a phenomenon known as social facilitation, whereby the presence of others enhances performance by creating an atmosphere of positive reinforcement or competition. So, even if you don't consider yourself a wine person, having someone around who can explain what you're tasting may improve your experience. Our minds also affect the way we taste food and drink. For many of us, our senses of smell and taste are intertwined. When we can smell something, it helps us to identify its flavor. But our brains have an even more powerful impact on how we perceive flavors. Studies strongly suggest that expectations about a food or beverage's taste can influence how much pleasure or displeasure we get from it. For example, people tend to rate wines higher if they're told that the wine is expensive as opposed to not getting any such information. Similarly, consumers often buy food based on perceived health benefits rather than actual nutritional content. This reliance on preconceived notions of what makes something good or healthy can lead us to make choices that don't actually align with our individual needs or desires. The pleasure we take from food and drink can also be affected by how we think about them. For instance, people often feel more satisfied after a meal when they focus on how much enjoyment it brings them rather than counting calories or feeling guilty for indulging. Similarly, taking time to slow down and savor each sip of a special bottle of wine can help enhance our experience of its flavor and aroma allowing us to truly appreciate it. And finally, being mindful of where your food comes from, whether it's local, organic, or sustainably grown, can not only provide you with peace of mind, but may even contribute to a deeper sense of satisfaction in the taste and texture of your meal. Ultimately, our minds have a powerful influence on how we experience food and drink. And so, by understanding this connection, we can become more mindful eaters, aware of how our expectations, habits, and attitudes shape the pleasure we get from each bite or sip. So, whether you're at a dinner party, an outdoor concert, or just enjoying a glass of wine after work, take a moment to appreciate all that goes into making it not only delicious, but also meaningful. Things like texture, spices, fat, i.e. butter, sweetness, saltiness, and so on, all contribute to the enjoyment or lack thereof in the experience of having lunch on that particular day with no major distractions. So with that in mind, let's return to the wine tasting or the food and wine pairing. Regardless of whether the pairing is a result of genius or something purely random, one thing is certain. You will pay much closer attention to what's going on in your mouth. And likely, regardless of the brilliance of the exercise, the amount of pleasure that you had that day will be increased by either a little or a lot simply because you took the time to focus. It's like that page in the book that we talked about that you reread over and over and over again. You could have wasted a half an hour doing that, or you could have forced yourself to focus, blocked out as much interference from the outside world as you possibly could, and increased your comprehension by leaps and bounds, saving yourself 25 minutes of your day that could have been used for something else. 
hopefully something pleasurable. Distraction is definitely a pleasure killer, and so is its very close cousin, desensitization. The easiest way to understand desensitization is to take a moment to think about pain. While this analogy may not apply to you, there's a good chance that you know somebody to whom it does. One of the reasons there's so much debate around the use of narcotic pain relievers is that, with tiny exceptions, people who have to deal with a long-term pain issue will need to increase the amount of pain reliever that they take as time goes on. The rest of the world looks at these people, and it's quick to label them as addicts. That's really a travesty. They're not addicts. They're simply having to deal with the grim reality of how our bodies function. We get desensitized. The amount of pain reliever that's used to bring relief to what ails us now frequently fails us. We need more, not because we're junkies, but because this is how our bodies work, plain and simple. It's a cruel reality. Do you know somebody who coats their food with salt? They may coat most of the food on their plate with salt. Few things impact the taste of food more than salt. Maybe you don't personally require much salt, but chances are you've had experiences where just a tiny amount of salt completely changed the food in front of you. Here's what a BBC science publication had to say about salt. They say, salt is used as a universal flavor improver because at low concentrations, it will reduce bitterness but increase sweet, sour, and umami, which is desirable for sweet recipes. But at higher concentrations, it suppresses sweetness and enhances umami, which is good for savory things. There has been a whole lot written about the relationship between salt and wine. When you salt your food, it can totally change the wine enjoyment experience, sometimes giving you a lot more pleasure and sometimes ruining the taste of the wine. But here's something interesting. A lot of winemakers now are experimenting with the addition of salt into the wine itself and are getting some really interesting results. Can't talk about that too much today, but I will get onto that subject in detail at a later time. Anyway, uh, back to salt in general. Now, when it comes to salt, soup is a great example. A bowl of inadequately salted soup can be a complete and utter bore, but a dash of salt can be transformational. Those particularly sensitive to salt's transformational properties may find themselves in the same predicament as the person contending with chronic pain. As time passes and your body becomes more desensitized to salt, you have to add more. As a result, one person sitting at a dinner table may be having a completely different experience than others at the table simply because he or she is adding salt to the meal. In some cultures, the practice of salting food after it's been presented by the chef is strictly taboo. In Italy, where I currently live, you will never see salt and pepper on the table. Sometimes you'll be served olive oil, Parmesan cheese, or chopped up chilies. Sometimes you'll be served all three. These condiments have specific purposes, and so just because you've got a bowl of Parmesan cheese on the table doesn't mean that it's appropriate to sprinkle it on everything that you're served. It's probably a very good idea to ask. Anyway, there may be strategies to minimize the escalation of salt usage, but that's another discussion. We'll talk about it at a later time as well. And by the way, this desensitization is not limited to food. Think about movies for a second. If you think back, let's say 40 years ago, assuming you're old enough to do that, you'll notice a glaring difference between the amount of violence or sex or controversial content in movies produced in those days compared to now. 
Today's shoot-em-ups are incredibly over the top because we don't get the same adrenaline rush that we once did. Movies that have sequel after sequel almost always reflect the issue of desensitization. What once kept people on the edge of their seats is no longer adequate, and you have to have more. All of this is human nature. All of this is the way our brains and bodies work. We're caught in an inescapable whirlwind. We require more stimulus every day because what once satisfied us now leaves us hungry for more. All right, uh, we're going to finish up this thought in just a second. Got to take a little break here and uh, in the next segment. I'm also going to give you my highfalutin recipe for something that I think is just the most delicious thing I've ever tasted. That when we return with Grape Encounters. Did you know that some wines are just as delicious and desirable after a hundred years as they were when they were young? Hmm, should, should I be seeing a winemaker instead of my doctor? Grape Encounters will return right after this. At MM Organics, we're surrounded by health nuts. That's because we're obsessed with lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, and the risk of cancer. We want to make weight loss easier and help you strengthen everything from your heart to your teeth, nails, and hair. Full disclosure, those health nuts are actually dry-farmed heirloom certified organic raw walnuts. Rich with essential vitamins and nutrients, they're vastly superior to other nuts. Imagine, walnuts can actually lower stress and boost your brain power. No wonder MM Organics customers are so darn smart. MMOrganics.com is where you'll find our uniquely irresistible raw walnuts, walnut butter, oil and flour, sprouted flavored walnuts, and decadent fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, which pair beautifully with our legendary two horse port style wine. MMOrganics.com, eating any other nuts is just plain nuts. We're back with more grape encounters. Did you know that there are approximately 600 grapes in every glass of wine and about 3,000 in every bottle? And remember that breakfast cereal commercial that claimed there were two scoops of raisins in every package of their Bran Flakes product? It's a good thing most people don't drink wine for breakfast because the potential to have more than your fair daily share of grapes is definitely there. Thank goodness farmers grow more grapes than any other fruit. Aren't grapes groovy? All right, back with Grape Encounters Radio. And you know, the main point of today's discussion is to drive home the idea that neither the food or the wine that we consume is 100% responsible for how much pleasure we experience. The way we live has everything to do with the enjoyment we get from what we eat and drink, meaning we may be unknowingly sabotaging our own enjoyment. The challenge is to find strategies that enable us to find pleasure in new and different ways, to connect with certain things more easily. Now take wine for instance. Drinking wine when you're not focused on the wine is an excellent reason not to drink high quality wine all the time. Sometimes you'll get the same pleasure from a cheap bottle of wine as an expensive one. A backyard barbecue on a hot sunny day with lots of friends, great music, and an inviting swimming pool can take much of the focus off the taste of what goes in your glass. 
In situations like this, it's not uncommon for the host to buy wine in a box and serve it in plastic cups, much to the unexpected pleasure of the people drinking it. All these other things that give us pleasure help bolster the day's overall enjoyment. There are days when you may be consuming an incredibly excellent bottle of wine, but you've got so much on your mind that you simply don't have the time, the energy, or the will to pay attention to all of those complexities that we love to talk about when we're trying to fully appreciate an awesome bottle. So it's no surprise that our environment has a major impact on how enjoyable any dining experience can be. Whether at home or out with friends, the atmosphere surrounding us when we eat and drink can greatly influence our mood, state of mind, and ultimately the pleasure we take from it. But it's important to note that all elements aren't equal. Certain aspects have been proven to have more influence than others. For example, studies have suggested that natural light streaming through windows or an aesthetically pleasing table setting can actually cause people to savor their meal more than they would in a dimly lit or cluttered setting. Similarly, research has found that when we eat with other people, we tend to concentrate more on the flavors and aromas of our food than when dining alone, thus increasing the pleasure derived from it. So as we become more conscious of our own food and drink experiences, it also becomes essential to consider time management in order to maximize enjoyment. Eating too quickly or too slowly can lead to a decline in pleasure. This is why it's beneficial to develop an understanding of how long certain dishes take to consume while still savoring each bite. Additionally, avoiding distractions such as TV or phone screens during meals can help keep us more focused on the experience at hand. Like you're going to really put down the phone, right? Anyway, by employing these strategies, we may find ourselves unlocking an even greater sense of pleasure from eating and drinking. And then finally, dietary adjustments can prove to be invaluable when it comes to making the most out of our culinary experiences. In particular, eliminating certain food items or beverages that are known to dull out flavors, such as dairy products and citrus fruits. This may help us better appreciate the nuances in what we eat and drink. Furthermore, adding spices and herbs with complementary notes can further enhance taste sensations by amplifying certain qualities that might otherwise be subdued. Through these small but significant dietary changes, we can find ourselves achieving a new level of satisfaction that was previously unimagined. The more quickly we sort all this out, the faster we can develop strategies that consider the effects of distraction and desensitization on our overall experience. Here's one more example of what we're talking about. There's a common scenario that you see in movies and television programs. It's where a couple's in bed and one partner's eager for romance while the other is glued to the football game on the big screen TV at the foot of the bed. The sports fan's totally absorbed in the moment. And it's not that they aren't attracted to their partner, it's just that the timing is terrible. In this common Hollywood scenario, the jilted partner takes it very personally, even to the point that they start entertaining thoughts of infidelity. In real life, what ought to happen here is thoughtful scheduling. There's the best time for everything, and hoping to have romantic pleasure in the middle of a game is asking too much. However, there's a way to have it both ways. The partner seeking a little passion should put on a football uniform, complete with a helmet, and then crawl into bed and snuggle up with your partner. That's the perfect pairing. There's an ideal scenario for every bottle of wine, for every meal you have. And so I think it's just important that we become a lot more conscientious about what we drink and when we drink it and who we drink it with. Simple as that. 
Okay, so I'm going to take a couple of minutes to tell you about a recipe that I've been playing around with that I have made now about three or four times in the last month because, first of all, I've been experimenting, and second of all, it's just so delicious. Everybody wants me to make it for them. And it started with me trying to create a meal in my Instant Pot. I decided I wanted to try to cook some chicken thighs and rice at exactly the same time. So I played around with a couple of different scenarios and then finally decided I was going to put the rice in the Instant Pot. I was going to cook it with coconut milk and then I would put the little wire rack that stands about, I don't know, an inch and a half high on top of the rice and then put the chicken on top of that. Get the idea? So you got chicken, rack, then rice, and the rice is saturated in coconut milk. And you know, some other seasoning, salt and pepper, what have you. But what I did with the chicken was one of my favorite rubs, which in this particular case was smoked paprika, brown sugar, salt, pepper, garlic, and onion. And I used powder for everything in this particular case. And then I add the magic ingredient, which is about a cup of grated Parmesan cheese, which I dump over the top of the chicken. And if it falls down the sides, that's perfectly okay. So we put it in the Instant Pot. I let it cook for 25 minutes under the pressure cooker setting. And that is meat fall off the bones kind of tender, right? Except it was a little bit much for the rice. And so when I took everything out, the bottom of the rice was all brown. And so at first I'm going, oh no, I've ruined it, right? And then I tasted a piece of this rice and I went, oh my gosh, this is the most delicious thing I can possibly imagine. And so then I started playing with it and I started looking also online and found out that in fact, there are, well, not a lot, but there are some recipes for something called crispy rice. And you can do it in an Instant Pot. You can also do it on the stove. And the idea is to intentionally cause the bottom of the rice to brown. And they also, by the way, call this shattered rice. So in case you're not following what I'm telling you about my recipe, you can just go online and you can find it. But it is absolutely, positively amazing. Now, here's the thing. There has to be oil or butter or fat or some kind of grease at the bottom of the pan. Otherwise, you're just going to get black char out of the rice. It's not going to be good. You're not going to be happy. And remember, you've got also some of the greasy cheese that is seeping down to the bottom of the pan and also helping to hold all of that rice together. So what's happening here is as the pressure cooker is doing its magic, the fat is starting to drip down to the bottom of the pan and it becomes the thing along with the butter that keeps the rice from sticking and allows the rice to brown. Oh my gosh, so beautiful. I'm gonna tell you, use coconut milk. I really, really recommend it. As far as what you put on the chicken, that's kinda up to you. Now, what a lot of people do, and now I'm doing, is now that I have a chicken sitting on the metal rack, I can pull the chicken out and it's not all mixed in with the rice, right? So then I take the rice out of the pan and then I take the soft rice that's on top and I put it back in the pan with either some oil or some butter at the bottom of the pan, I mean Instant Pot, and then I let it cook again and I brown that rice so that I have two basically pieces of browned rice with soft rice in between. Are you following? Now I debone the chicken, I chop it up, and I put it in between 
those two sections of rice. You know, again, the rice is browned on the bottom, but it's soft in between. And I have two of those. I press it together. I put it on a platter. And then you can adorn it any way that you want to. And then you just cut it up like a pie. And I'm guaranteeing that you will love this so, so, so much. And I'm sorry if I've confused you a little bit, but I think you get the gist of it. Go online and search for either crispy rice or shattered rice. And I think there are also some other names for it. You'll find recipes there. You can do it stovetop or you can do it in your Instant Pot. I strongly recommend doing it in the Instant Pot. You are not going to be disappointed. It is so incredibly delicious. And you will find people that literally will not get away from the platter or the pot because they want to pick it every last bit of this browned rice. It's delicious. All right, when we come back, I'm going to tell you about a little something that I learned just a couple of days ago about the region I am living here in, Abruzzo, that is, in Italy. That when we return with Grape Encounters. At every family gathering, my brother Steve and I each bring several bottles of wines and try to one-up each other. I bring wines from all over. Steve only brings wines from California's Mendocino wine country, where he's lived for decades. And even though there are hundreds of great wineries there he can choose from, he mostly brings wines from the Graziano family of wines. Now you'd think you'd see a lot of duplicates from past gatherings since most producers only make 6 to 12 wines, but Graziano has 5 brands that make literally dozens, upwards of 30 mostly Italian varietals, and all rock stars. Made by the real rock star, Greg Graziano. You can hear my recent interview with Greg at GrapeEncounters.com, and you can find Graziano wines all over America, or buy them online at GrazianoFamilyOfWines.com. I've never confessed how much I love Graziano wines to my brother, and uh, let's keep it that way. If you tried a different wine grape varietal every day, it would take more than 27 years for you to get through the list. And while you're busy tasting all those choices, winemakers around the world will be coming up with countless blends to set you back. So, to uncomplicate things, we'll help you sort things out in the wine world and point you to the stuff that we think you'll find essential and unforgettable. Starting right here today on Grape Encounters with David Wilson. You know, how many of us can honestly say that we are footloose and fancy free? When you're young and single and have a decent amount of money in the bank, it's easier to make decisions outside of your comfort zone, especially if you're not tied down to a job that requires you to go to a specific place at a specific time every day. But the truth is, most people are in no position to throw caution to the wind and turn their lives upside down and inside out on a whim. That mere act of chasing rainbows may not be particularly difficult, but if there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, undoing some life-altering decisions can be daunting and even humiliating, especially if, like me, you have family and friends who can't resist the temptation to say, what in the world were you thinking? I wish I had a dollar for every time I bragged about being spontaneous. My whole life, I've characterized myself as being someone unafraid of jumping in head first without ever testing the water. But the truth is, I've always been a lot more calculating than I let people believe. In fact, full disclosure, 
it's possible that I've missed out on a whole lot of adventures because I was too cautious. What I'm saying is that there have been very few times in my life when I have felt that it was safe and comfortable and wise to take a giant leap of faith and do something truly daring. You know, Tom Cruise, I'll do my own stunts kind of daring. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about the kind of adventures that have been a part of living the lifestyle that I advocate on this show. I believe in making the most out of every minute. I want you to get up and do things that feed your mind and soul, that stimulate laughter and imagination. Most of us spend way too much time sitting on the sidelines, which is the couch, waiting for fun and adventure to send us an engraved invitation or come knocking at our door with a limo parked at the curb, beckoning us to climb aboard. And so I can say that I've had a very interesting, exciting, and fortunate life that gives me no reason to complain. Climbing Mount Everest or sailing around the world in a 19-foot sloop all by myself probably isn't my thing. However, just a little over a year ago, I did something so out of character, I still wake up most mornings saying to myself, I can't believe I actually did that. The truth is, for the better part of a year now, I've asked myself repeatedly why it is that I made the particular decision that I did. Because the truth is, I was in a pretty good position to make any number of life-altering decisions. Like millions of other people, the COVID years had been extremely disruptive, and I found myself willing to seriously consider a lot of alternative scenarios to the lifestyle that I'd been living. I fantasized about fashioning a whole new life for myself once we were free to move about the world. And so, ready, willing, and able to make big changes, I did exactly that. However, the decision I ultimately made was not well thought out and was pretty illogical. The first opportunity that I had to travel once COVID restrictions began to subside ended up being a trip to the Abruzzo region in Italy. It was a very spontaneous trip that came about because I'd done a Zoom interview with a winemaker who had undertaken a very interesting project that involved resurrecting the tools and technology of winemaking that existed at the height of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. I loved the story of Piero Pavoni, and I told him that I'd love to come and see him, and I did. Well, I don't think I was here for more than about eight hours when I was overwhelmed with the fantasy of going back to California, packing my bags, and moving here for at least a year. Piero was very excited about the prospect of me providing some consultation services. I loved the idea of bringing the Grape Encounters broadcast to Europe so that I could chase stories all over the old world. But it really was just a fantasy until I found out how cheaply I could rent an apartment in the medieval village of Atri where Piero's Vinum Hadrianum brand was based. It was so cheap, as a matter of fact, that even if I decided to turn around and go back, I wouldn't be out much, and it wasn't particularly risky. Except it became risky when I went back to the States after my 10-day trip and liquidated absolutely everything. And here's the scary part. Abruzzo isn't Tuscany or Rome or Naples or the Amalfi Coast or any of the vastly more popular destinations that attract millions of tourists to Italy every year. This is a place where very few people speak English and where American culture is about as foreign as it gets. Even so, there was something that kept telling me that I needed to come here. In part, I felt like there was something constructive I could contribute. Now, the wines in Abruzzo are really delicious. They're ridiculously inexpensive. In many ways, I felt bad about that because they deserve to be making more for these high-quality products. And even though you can certainly get wines from Abruzzo in America, they aren't nearly as popular as other Italian varietals that command 4 or 10 or even 20 times the price. I discovered very quickly that a lot of the winemakers here were very eager to get their products to America and other countries, but just didn't have any idea about how to go about doing that. Now, not that I'm an expert on wine exportation, but I knew one thing for certain. 
Having run a retail wine shop for nearly 10 years, there was no question in my mind that these wines were very well suited to the American palate and that they deserved a place in the American wine marketplace. So the bottom line is that I relocated to a place that was going to be quite difficult to navigate and where I was not going to be in the company of many other English-speaking people, but something told me I needed to be here. Well, it all of a sudden made sense a few days ago. Abruzzo a terrific but somewhat obscure wine region where American consumers are concerned, was just named Wine Enthusiast Wine Region of the Year. It was a stunning achievement to earn that title. Absolutely stunning. There have got to be thousands of wine regions throughout the world, but of all the regions that could have been chosen for this very coveted award, Abruzzo got the nod. Overnight, I was no longer in an Italian wine region not widely known by Americans, but instead, it was suddenly one of the hottest things. Ten years ago, I moved to the Paso Robles wine region, and almost instantly, it was named Wine Region of the Year. So literally a decade apart, I have lived in two of the most respected wine regions in the world, and I couldn't be more honored. I'll just end with a little story. There's a really wonderful woman who I've met here. I don't know her very well, but her name is Luigia. One day during the holidays, she knocked at my door, and she was holding this great big basket full of Italian artisan products. Pasta, sauces, salamis, and all kinds of other goodies. Honestly, I've only had a few conversations with her up to that point. She speaks some English, not a lot, but we manage. Anyway, I have shared with her my thoughts about how strange the decision to move to the Abruzzo region was for me and how some people back home wonder how or why I decided to do this. When I thanked her for the very over-the-top gift, she told me that was really from the entire town. She said that people here were appreciative of my being here and that I was doing stories on Grape Encounters and mentioning this place and that she wanted to put this gift together on behalf of everybody to thank me for coming here. Then she got this funny look on her face and she said, you know, David, you may think that you chose Autry, but the truth is Autry chose you. That was certainly a metaphysical minute. That is going to do it for Grape Encounters this week. Thanks for joining me. And I'm going to get the folks at the Abruzzo Wine Consortium on as soon as I possibly can. And we'll talk more about this great honor that they achieved just a couple of days ago. We'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.